Hello, everyone. Redcoat here. Joined by Santier. Yeah. We're here for another podcast from Vernacular. Indeed. So today we wanted to go into a little bit of Vernacular's vernacular. Yeah, it's this concept of uh, we want to discuss games and analyze them. And to do that, we need tools. And one of the most important tools is to have words that mean things. Exactly. And so by defining a set of words that we can use to describe things, we gain a better ability to pinpoint and analyze different elements of the objects that we use the words to describe. Exactly. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get right into them. Sancher, if you would, let's go with that first one. Well, the first and important one is we need to define what we're talking about. And so we're talking about parts of a game. These are game objects. Everything in a game is a game object. Uh, this encompasses sort of abstract things like stats or, uh, I don't know, stamina, like, yeah. health. Stats, um, stamina, menus, characters, anything and everything in the game from the HUD to the actual objects that the player is really interacting with, they're yep. all game objects. And the thing then is we have a bunch of different tags for game objects. Now, one of the important things to define right away is most of these tags are non-exclusive, which means you could potentially have multiple different tags. Some are naturally going to be exclusive, and uh, some of them are like important subcategories of other ones. Uh, and we'll get into that as we go into them. Um, but the thing that's important is these tags are assigned based upon what the game object means to the player. And so to kind of contextualize that a little bit and why we say that, it, you can speak about it specifically if for a specific player, or you can look at it in aggregate of all of the players, but player behavior can modify how these tags get applied to something. Uh, and we'll go into some examples of that later to kind of give that more context and meaning. The, the main thing to always keep in mind with all of these is that it's what it means to the player. So, yeah, we'll get, we'll get into it. It can clash with what the developer might have intended. That's um, very important. Yeah. Uh, moving onward, well, the first thing we have is player objects. So this is an object that is, uh, per our definition, an object that is attached to or controlled by a player. What we mean by that is that when the player is considering that object, they consider it as a connected to themselves or their avatar. Um, so this would be something like uh, Indiana Jones in an Indiana Jones video game. If you're playing as Indiana Jones, uh, Indiana Jones himself is a player object. Exactly, because the player is controlling him. Also, if Indiana Jones has a gun, then that gun would be a player object because it's conceptually attached to Indiana Jones. Incidentally, from a more abstract concept, the menus that you bring up to manage Indiana Jones's inventory, those are also player objects. Exactly. And that's one of the things that gets highlighted by this system is it's um, the definitions make sense, but you have to kind of think about them a little bit to understand how they make sense sometimes. Yes. When we were coming up with these, it was something that came up regularly is this is a very academic system. It is very much meant to be used to define things and figure things out and force you to really think about it. Exactly. So from that point, we go to, okay, so we've defined things as player objects. So what is everything else? Well, non-player objects. Yep. We hit one of those exclusives right off the bat. A non-player object, uh, as per our definition, is an object that is not attached to or controlled by a player. Uh, fairly simple, I think. Yeah, it covers a lot of stuff in games. And again, 
these are fairly broad categories. Just you have to kind of understand uh, when you're analyzing a game how the player is going to view something. Are they going to view it as part of themselves or part of something else? And how's that going to affect their emo emotional response? Right. So one example I want to get into with the concept of player object versus non-player object, because it's a little bit important for how we move forward with our perceptions here. So let's let's go back to Indiana Jones here. Sure. Um, and we gave him a gun, right? Yep. So the gun fires bullets. Yep. So when you fire the gun, the bullet comes out. Because the bullet is no longer controlled by the player, like as soon as you fired it, um, you're no longer controlling it. It is actually a non-player object. Yeah, and that highlights something is this has to do with how the player is relating to things, right? If they are relating to that bullet as a player object still, then in their mind it still would be. But most players are going to be like, yep, that's just a bullet. It's gone. It's not mine anymore. It's yeah. a projectile. And so it ceases to be a player object. And that's one of the things that's really important to understand is these can be very fluid, not only over the course of a game's life cycle, uh, where you can sometimes see things turn into other things based on players' behavior, but also over the course of an but, object's lifetime. Yeah, from a frame-to-frame -frame point, you could see something changing from being a player object to a non-player object. And um, with the rest of our definitions, this can also be the case. Yeah. So, moving on from there, um, we go on to define a few... Um, elements of just play in general. And these are fairly easily recognized words, I think. Hopefully. So uh, the first one is objective. And um, a very simple definition. It's something the player is trying to achieve. Now, what's important here is that it's what the player is trying to achieve. So this doesn't necessarily mean that the developer has intended the player to try and achieve this. Yeah, there's some good examples. For example, if you're in a Mario game and you're trying to get to 99 lives for whatever reason, that's a player set goal and that's a player set objective. The developers aren't like telling you to get 99 lives. Yes, and the reason why this part of understanding this definition is important is because this will tell you a lot of things about how people are interacting with your game and whether or not they're likely to work with it in its intended manner or the way you intended it to be. Yeah, it's a question of what sort of objectives are the player setting for themselves and some games really want to make sure that they have a lot of space for players to kind of do that, to, to set their own personal objectives. MMOs are going to do that sort of thing a lot, where yeah. they're like, here is stuff, maybe the players will want to try to do something with it. Exactly. A lot of games will allow players to set their own objectives, and then you have other games that are a little bit more railroady. Uh, the Mario games are a good example of this, where you go into a level, what's the objective? Get to the end of the level. And there aren't very many th ways to get around having to do that objective to continue on through the game. Yeah, for sure. This is why that understanding is very important to that. Moving on from there, we have a related definition for progress. Mm -hmm. uh, and progress is just how far the player is from completing an objective. Very simple. Yeah. Kind of self-explanatory. But yeah, this one doesn't really have any weird strangeness. It's just... Um, it is what it says on the tin. We just gave it a lot of words afterwards to, to make sure that if people wanted to make sure it was saying what it said on the tin, they knew it did. Yep. So moving on from there, we go back to defining objects. So um, as stated before, we have player objects and non-player objects. And the reason why we just start, went to define objective and progress is because the next object has something to deal with specifically objective. 
Um, specifically, it is called an obstacle. So what's our definition of an obstacle? It's an object that impedes the player's efforts to complete their objective. And uh, this can be many things. Yeah, that's one of the things that we really uh, realize as we're figuring out, does this make sense as a word and, and as a term, and what does it apply to? And we realized this is extremely broad. If your objective, for example, is to win the game, anything that prevents you from seeing that victory screen is an obstacle. Uh, things like doors that are locked, for example, but just distance. Distance is an obstacle. And that's one of the things that, when we thought about it, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. But when we were first thinking through it, it's like, it's not what you traditionally think of as an obstacle, but it actually behaves as one. Yes, and you can extrapolate it out to the actual arrangement of all, all of those doors that you couldn't lock, uh, excuse me, couldn't unlock. And you could have a game about locking doors. Yes, you could have a do game about, I was about to say a door about locking doors. Uh, a game about locking doors, that would be very interesting. But yeah, the, the whole concept there is you could take all of those locked doors and then look at the area that they're in and realize that that's a level, and that level might be serving the purpose of stopping you from getting to the actual finish. So the For level, sure. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, a gigantic field and you have to get from one end to the other, it starts to feel like an obstacle partway through. Yeah. And so from a certain standpoint, levels are obstacles. If you think of them that way, that can allow you to approach um, building them and developing them in different ways. Yeah. And some of this thought about how obstacles work uh, brought us to a couple of split definitions to kind of give some further nuance. So the first one is a tense obstacle, which is an obstacle that increases player tension. It's pretty straightforward. It has to do with that feeling of, well, tension, but of uh, challenge and uncertainty of your ability to complete what you're trying to do, right? Yeah. Case in point, um, when we described obstacle, right, we gave the example of distance as an obstacle. That's not a tense obstacle because it doesn't immediately, by what it is, cause the player any form of consternation or even a sense of, how do I get past this? It's very easily traversed. Right. It's not an obstacle where you're like, can I get past this distance? It's like, wow, this is boring. Why does this keep going? Yeah, generally speaking, a tense obstacle causes the player to have to approach it differently. Either like in our one of the easiest examples is in Mega Man, uh, an extremely tense obstacle is spikes because you reach them and you realize that you need to get past them to get to your objective. But the thing is that if you mess up, you die. And that kind of highlights this idea, right? A lot of enemies are going to be tense obstacles, but not necessarily. And that brings us to the next type, which is a relaxed obstacle. And a relaxed obstacle is an obstacle that does not increase player tension. And this is where it's really important to note that tension will naturally go down. So when you lack tension, players' tension levels are naturally going to decrease. Um, so a really good example is if you are just in, if you just came from a room where it's like a boss battle, and then you get to uh, some room that's clearly devoid of any threat. It's a relaxed room, and you can feel that tension easing out of you. You you loosen up and relax a little bit, and that sort of thing. And that's where you can kind of see that happening. And so having some relaxed obstacles does provide some relief from 
tension, which can be good, but too much and things kind of get boring because there's no longer any challenge or interest, or that's a possibility anyway. Yeah. It fits into uh, one of the concepts of game flow where you're usually moving from climax to climax with a rising action to a high tension, uh, high tension climax to a denouement or a, um, a falling action, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, where the attention kind of eases. And the the thing that's also important to understand is that things can transition from being a tense obstacle to a relaxed obstacle. And that's where, for example, the uh, enemies that I brought up earlier can go from tense to relaxed if the player doesn't feel threatened by them. Exactly. Like in any, in any RPG, you see this with um, early enemies. For sure. Like that level 2 Pidgey, certainly not going to threaten your level 100 Mewtwo. Yeah, now you don't even have to worry about going into the tall grass. These Pidgeys are just just an obstruction to your progress, but they don't actually make you feel like you're going to lose because of that. And that's actually where Earthbound, if I'm remembering correctly, has a fantastic mechanic where it says, this enemy is so weak you don't even fight it. Yep, you just kind of walk into it and they die. It's pretty great. More RPGs should do that. So moving on from the relaxed obstacle, this is an additional tag uh, that can be attached to an obstacle, um, which is called a trap. So uh, our definition of a trap is a game object that becomes an obstacle in reaction to another object's action. Note, this can be a player object, but it doesn't have to be. Yes, it can be, it can be any other object can trigger this, and this is important as we move forward. Um, with many of our definitions, we do not intrinsically link them to the player, um, which allows for enemies and other things that are not controlled by the player to retain these definitions. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that uh, kind of covers the trap a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you can think of, for example, an alarm that goes off, it triggers enemies, uh, probably more realistically call the enemies the trap part there, and the alarm is the object that causes them to activate as an obstacle, right? If they're in like a monster closet or something, or like a tripwire is a trap if it's opening a monster closet or things like that. So moving on from the trap, uh, we get to the agent. Uh, So the agent is a non-player object that has agency. To explain that, we have to define what agency is. Agency is the ability to make decisions. Yep. And it doesn't necessarily mean the ability to make smart decisions. Uh, random decision-making can be decision-making nonetheless. That ability, though, imbues something with qualities necessary to become an agent. Yes. Smith would be proud. Indeed. Um, specifically, we say a non-player object just because the player does have agency, but uh, we're more looking at non-player objects that are making decisions. Yes. A player object is imbued with agency through the player. It is possible to remove agency from the player, and we usually call those movies. Yes, yes, we do. We usually call those movies. There are a lot of games that um, are actually movies in disguise. Or at least have moments that are definitely movies. Yeah. Usually called cutscenes. Mm-hmm. Some cutscenes should be cut. Possibly so. But yeah, so that's, uh, that's the definition of an agent. So an agent is a non-player object with agency. The other way to look at that is that um, if it has AI... It's probably an agent. So if it has some way of making some sort of decision, some way of considering what's going on around it and then acting on that information, then it is an agent. Yeah. Moving on from that, we have foes, which is an agent that is also an obstacle. So this kind of shows you how some of these things kind of build a little bit, right? Um, NPCs, uh, non-player characters that are like friendly and allied to the player are 
or have the ability to be agents. And it's specifically a foe is referencing something that is an obstacle, so it's intentionally something that's supposed to be getting in the player's way, and an agent. Now, keep in mind, this doesn't necessarily mean that they're an enemy, and this is kind of why we went with the word foe here, because the word enemy is so heavily loaded. Yes. Definitely, um, it should be noted that obstacles don't necessarily have to be acting aggressively towards the player per se to be obstacles and the same is true of an agent an agent can be in your way by just kind of blocking the door and they have no ill will they're just kind of there i mean think about snorlax in pokemon red and blue and where he's just snoozing right Mm -hmm. and uh you know it's been a problem Although you could argue well, he gets to make decisions once he wakes up, right? But yeah, once you wake him up, well, basically he is a he's an obstacle that becomes an agent. Yeah, but it's the sort of idea of um, let's see if I can find a better example. Um, say a shopkeeper, maybe that you have to buy a specific item from, but uh, actually that makes me think of an excellent example: the witch in uh, Majora's Mask that you have to bring the red potion to. Ah, yes. And I believe you have to bring the red potion in order, yes, to proceed to the uh, Deku Palace, the first dungeon. And so that's an agent uh, acting... An, an agent that is also an obstacle, but is not necessarily a um, an enemy AI. Right, it's not an enemy, but is uh, a foe. Although that may not be 100% the best example, because I'm not sure how much agency that character actually exhibits. But That's fair. <laughs> um... Obviously, this is a little bit more more tricky to come up with ex- excellent examples on. Yes. It, well, it's very difficult to find a foe that... Um, it's very difficult to find a foe that isn't acting like an enemy. Yeah. Uh, most of the time... And to be sure, uh, when we're looking back at the concept of the agent, it's even, um, finding an agent that's not a foe. Um, you have to look into specific games to find those, like NPCs and stuff like that. Yeah, I think something like an RPG might tend to have that sort of thing more often. Exactly. Moving on from there, um, we get to definitions with regards to other objects, objects that are not obstacles. Yeah. So the first of these is the asset. An asset is an object that augments or expands the capabilities of its possessor. Once again, we're avoiding specifically saying player because um, these can be possessed by non-player objects. Yeah, and just to kind of reemphasize the important parts of there, it augments or expands the capabilities of its possessor. Now, an asset can be a lot of different things. This is where like stats uh, are often an asset because they augment or expand your capabilities. For example, if your stats go up and that gains you access to new abilities or allows you to do more damage or have more health you know those things are all assets exactly and the important part of the definition is augments or expands so it needs to it needs to do something to your capabilities well we've given stats as an example um if we take metroid for instance um your power-ups are assets Um, right your charge shot power-up that lets you use the charge shot is an asset yeah because they expand your capabilities So um, moving on from there, uh, we get to the resource. A resource is an object that is depletable. The definition is short, but the wording is important. Yeah. Just because you can get more of it doesn't mean it's a resource. You have to be able to expend it, right? It has to be able to go down. So 
if you get a set quantity and it will slowly go down over time, that's a resource. An excellent example would be the clock in uh, Mario games where they have a timer, right? Yeah. That timer is a resource. It goes down and when it's out that there's some dire consequences, but that's not important. It's just, it's something that goes down. That makes it a resource. Yes. And it's what you do with resources that really kind of matters with them. But there's also other examples. In card games, for example, the number of cards in your hand, if you can play cards and that decreases them, then the cards in your hand are a resource, right? If you can only ever increase the number of cards in your hand, then they're not a resource anymore. Yes. Um, The important thing is that they are depletable, which means that there is a non-trivial interaction with how many are there. That is to say that in in most scenarios, when you deplete your resource, you're depleting it for some reason. Um, or it's auto-depleting for some reason. Yeah. So moving on from there, um, we get to currency. So currency is a type of resource. So a currency is a resource that can be repeatedly exchanged for other game objects. Keyword, repeatedly. Otherwise, it's a trade item. Yes. So as you might have guessed from the term we used, currency, the most easy example of this is money. Um, Any form of money that shows up in a game. Rupees, gold. Although the thing that's really interesting about this is the way that this uh, definition works. And remember, this is what it means to the player. So to kind of give a great example of that, uh, I've heard about a particular weapon in one of the early Diablo games that in the multiplayer, the gold, the intended currency by the developers was so devalued that sort of a rare weapon became the sort of standard of player currency. And so instead of gold being a currency when players are considering it, the players were considering the weapon as their new currency. And so that changes a little bit about how you approach to the de- approach to the de- approach the design of the game. Um, because now you realize that that thing that you were giving people as a reward for defeating enemies and such, it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, and that actually highlights one of the things that MMOs have to struggle with a lot is trying to make sure that their currencies remain their currencies, right? Um, and not have some other item uh, become their currencies. For example, in Guild Wars 1, not quite a full-on MMO, but basically had the market problems of one, a crafting material called ectoplasm ended up becoming uh, one of the primary forms of higher-end currency because you could only trade so much gold at a time, it made it a way of being able to trade more at a time. And that sort of thing can easily happen with severe inflation, and that's why MMO economies are so extremely difficult. Yes, those are very, very difficult to manage. Uh, In general, currency management is one of those things that economies are hard. Like RPGs are very good example of this. It's very rare that you find one that over the course of the entirety of the game, it still feels like your money is worth something. Yeah. Uh, there's a number of culprits for this, by the way, not to get it into too long, but real life has things like rent, maintenance uh, on like vehicles or other things, uh, having to replace things like worn out garments, tires, you know, insurance costs, 
food. So you have all of these things that are performing the uh, the action of providing a natural drain on the economy. Video games don't typically have that sort of regular maintenance fees sort of stuff in terms of in-game currency, and that makes them very, very difficult. Yeah, it makes for a very static economy. But that's a, a topic to go into in more depth later in another podcast entirely. Indeed. Uh, moving on from there, we get to the consumable. So the consumable is an object that is a resource, note that, that its possessor can deplete to generate an asset. Uh, the thing that's really important to note there is that its possessor has to be the one depleting it. Uh, this is actually something that we had a bit of an interesting struggle with. So there is a boss in Demon Souls, which has the ability to decrease your stats. And we didn't really think your stats made a whole lot of sense to be labeled as a consumable. So we had to think about our definition. Yes, so it's important to note that um, it's something that the possessor willingly depletes to create their asset. And so the items that come to mind when thinking of this, uh, those of you who have played the Fire Emblem series, the, the Volnanary, which is basically a potion, um, you deplete an amount of that to increase your health. And the thing about it is that you're generating the asset of HP by depleting some amount from this object. So a lot of things that you think of as consumable items will cleanly fit under this sort of label. But there's other stuff that might fit under there that you wouldn't necessarily immediately think of. Moving on from that, we have uh, the tool, which is an acquirable object that reduces or removes an obstacle's ability to impede the player's uh, progress. And the thing that's important to note about this is a lot of different things can fit into this category, and it will often be shared with other stuff. For example, in Metroid, the high jump boots are a tool and an asset, right? By increasing your jump height, you remove the ability of very high ledges to impede your ability to progress. Exactly. And again, this is why we have the, the tagability. There are many objects that can contain multiple of these definitions. Yeah. So the most common tool that you will see um, or at least one of the more common tools that you will see, is the key. Yeah. Um, you might actually think, well, why aren't you calling this a key item? It's because key item means a lot of different things in a lot of different games, and we needed a term that was kind of devoid of that baggage. Exactly. By calling it a tool, this broadens the definition to include many different things um, and allows it to not get hung up on just the concept of the key. Moving on from there, we get to collectibles. So the collectible is a non-asset, non-resource game object that can be increased. Yep. So it doesn't matter how much it can be increased. You can increase it by exactly one and only one in the entire course of the game. That's fine. The thing that's important about this is it itself is not an asset, so it does not augment or expand the capabilities of its possessor and is not a resource, so you can't deplete it. Exactly. So what are these? What, um, what are some examples of these? If you've played any open world game, those items that you have to kind of run around town and find and get, and they don't really do much other than, you know, raise your, um, for lack of a better term, gamer cred, those are collectibles. Yep. Or like uh, the Riddler trophies in the Batman games, right? Mm -hmm. Like you get them and Huzzah maybe have unlocked some artwork or something, but they don't provide a benefit to you for having them. Yeah, one of the big things there is that um, there isn't a mechanical effect that these collectibles have. Generally, yeah. Moving on from there, we have collectible collectible part. I almost said collectible cart. Uh, <laughs> well, I 
I guess you could have carts that are collectible in a game. Yeah, you could have parts of a cart that you collect to make a cart. There you go. But um, the, the definition of a collectible part is a collectible that becomes an asset when a certain amount or specific set of collectibles that include it have been acquired. What's an example of this? Um, if you've played Legend of Zelda, the heart pieces. Yep, this is a common example. A heart piece by itself doesn't do anything for you. When you have enough of them, they transform into an asset. Now, it can be a little confusing. Why isn't this a resource? Because it's depleting. How does that mean it's still collectible? Well, it's kind of a weird manner of uh, alchemy, I suppose. But it's how these kind of get logically applied. The player isn't generally going to be treating these as a resource. It's not the player actively depleting them either. It's when they get enough of the collectible, the game automatically translates it into an asset. That's the case for the heart pieces. You cannot actually specifically go and spend your heart pieces on something. Exactly. And it's that lack of, well, agency in the process of doing stuff with them that really kind of has a big impact and deciding factor on it. And a lot of these are kind of, think about it, if it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense as that, probably isn't. Yeah. Um, but these are a list of terms, and we should have them available to view somewhere on the internet that I'm sure will be in the show notes. Sorry for the work I made you. <laughs> um, and we will be trying to use these terms in future podcasts because we need to have clean and clear and concise definitions for things uh, to help us in our process of analyzing things and how they work. Yes. And um, please note that um, like we're going through this whole process of learning and um, further expanding our knowledge of game development and game design, as you are. So uh, these are not necessarily the end-all, be-all. These are the terms that we use. And they're not necessarily set in stone either. If we find that they need to be modified or updated, we'll do so. Or if we need more terms, we'll add more. So I'd say that that about covers it. Uh, for the vernacular's vernacular. Um, thank you for listening to us uh, talk on about uh, different definitions and become a uh, oral dictionary for a moment. Yep. We talked about words, using words. Yeah. That's uh, how language works. <laughs> so without further ado, I'd like to go ahead and bring us to the sign-off. Alrighty, righty. Santier, signing off. And this is Redcoat, signing off. Play the games you want to play, boyos.